Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So imagine stepping out of your day-to-day life and just dropping yourself into a gorgeous 130-acre natural playground for three and a half days of learning and laughing and moving your body and calming your brain and reconnecting with people who just see the world the way that you do and accept you completely as you are. So that's what we've created with our Camp Good Life Project or Camp GLP experience. We've actually brought together a lineup of really inspiring teachers from art to entrepreneurship, from writing to meditation, pretty much everything in between. It's this beautiful way to fill your noggin with ideas to live and work better and a really rare opportunity to create the type of friendships and stories you pretty much thought you'd left behind decades ago. It's all happening at the end of August, just about 90 minutes from New York City, and we're well on our way to selling out spots at this point. So be sure to grab your spot as soon as you can if it's interesting to you. You can learn more at goodlifeproject.com camp, or just go ahead and click the link in the show notes now. The decisions you've made that have led you to this point were not wrong decisions. They were almost certainly based on a search for something that you need, that you lack, even if you were not aware of needing and lacking them. By all accounts, this week's guest, Jesse Browner, was living a fantastic life as he entered his 50s. 
a successful multi-time author with big published houses in New York City, full-time prestigious job, married to a wonderful woman, father of great kids living in the middle of Manhattan. Everything seemed to be going well, but tripping into this moment in his life, he began to ask some of the big questions. And and his attention zoomed back to his early 20s when he lived in part of New York City that was kind of known as being the heartbeat of Bohemia, where actually, if you've ever seen the movie or seen the play, Rent, it depicted life in what was then called Alphabet City, where you know the writers and the artists and the hyper-creators were really living hand-to-mouth, but living and breathing their art in this extraordinary place and way. And he was one of those people. And he made a series of choices that led to a beautiful, secure life. But he started to wonder, what if I had chose differently? And where might my expression of the craft be? You know, what kind of a writer would I have potentially emerged into? Is there just massive wellspring of buried potential that I've kept on some level buried because I made different choices and and his exploration of these questions, which I'm guessing if you're listening to this, you may have some of those same questions, led to a deep exploration that lasted a number of years and to a really fascinating book called How Did I Get Here? We go into this entire journey and the creative process and the writing process and the process of really hitting the middle of your life and asking the really important questions, but at the same time, going through a process of letting go of the questions that are tormenting you and learning to look forward and crafting the next generation, the next evolution of your, your time here in a more deliberate and graceful way. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. So it's fascinating because there's so many directions that I potentially want to go with you, but I grew up just outside of New York. I've been a New Yorker. I've been in the city for 25, 30 years now myself. So I remember when Rent originally came out with the original cast, mm. you know, and saw it. And my mind melted and it was, and being exposed to your work and you describing sort of the earlier part of your life just kind of brought me back <laughs> to that moment. And it almost sounded like I'm what you were really kicking around what's now called the East Village, but, you know, back then was Alphabet City, probably similar time. Uh, yeah, I graduated from college in 83, and uh, I went straight to the East Village. That's where everybody went. Yeah. You know, you walking down the street, it was like practically like being in your own living room. You knew everybody. You know, at night, you would go from one bar to the next, and yeah. everybody would know each other. It was like having one giant living room. You know, people don't really remember that it was pretty dangerous. I mean, in the space of four years, my apartment was broken into three times. But the fact is, I don't remember that either. I only remember that it was just incredibly intimate and optimistic. Everybody I knew was an artist of some kind or another. I think I mentioned in the book, or maybe in one of the earlier versions of it, how shocked I was when somebody I'd gone to college with told me he was going to law school mm. because it just seemed so – I couldn't even imagine doing it. The truth is I couldn't imagine ever living any different than the way I was living. And that's sort of what sparked the whole impetus for the book. Yeah. So take me a little bit more into what does day-to-day life look like for you at that moment in your life? I mean, you sort of set the context in terms of the neighborhood being profoundly different right. than it is today. But take me into sort of like the, the artist's life, you know, at that moment well, in time. For you, you know, uh, first of all, it was really cheap. 
and it was very easy to find a place to live. And that's what I have two daughters who are more or less the age I was then, and they could never even imagine the idea of living 10 minutes from Midtown in Manhattan. It was amazingly inexpensive, and my apartment was a little bit nicer than a lot of my friends. I actually had a bathroom with a bath in the bathroom. Most <laughs> most people had a bath or a shower in the kitchen. Right. Oh, that was the classic, you know. Yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah. I lived just in a typical tenement on a decent street, uh, 12th Street between 1st and A. It could get a lot worse the further east you went. Uh, I lived for a while on Avenue C with my sister. And there, you know, she like she was friends with all the drug dealers who would help her carry her. Yeah. I mean, because from the outside looking in, that part of the city at that time, and actually we're about the same age, I graduated the same year as you, that part of the city was sort of like known as being a pretty scary part of the city. If you weren't sort of living there from the inside out, I remember walking around back around then and literally it's almost like you're just, you know, kicking spent crack vials out of your way as you're walking down the street. You know, but it's true. It was that way. And if you really make an effort to remember it as it was rather than the sort of the rose-tinted glasses that we tend to put on at our age. It was filthy and dirty and dangerous, but it was so exciting. You know, everybody I knew was was a dancer, a musician, a poet, a composer, a writer, and we could all practice that as a community right there in the center of the greatest city in the world, you know. There was a real reason – that everybody wanted to come to New York City. It's just an incredible energy and vibe that that you were doing something new and that it was possible to do something new. I think in a way, more than cheap rents or community, what seems to be missing now, and I admit that you know, as a 50-something-year-old man, I don't necessarily know what's out there, is that sense that you could You could do anything and experiment in any way you wanted to. Nobody I knew did anything mainstream at all. In fact, we shunned it. Sometimes to our detriment, you know, because it would have been smarter for me, probably as a writer, to learn my chops in a more professional way than I did, rather than spend 10 years apprenticing by myself, you know, instead of learning how the world works when you need to sell your your writing. To me, the idea of selling anything was crazy. Yeah. That is still to this day such a fierce tension that exists in sort of creators, artists, writers, painters, whatever your medium may be. I mean, it's I hear this conversation to this day going on nonstop is that tension between you know, being a professional <laughs> and just wanting to and to and being a craftsperson. Well, uh, you know, I think that's a tension that's existed ever since, I don't know, the rise of the middle class, ever right. since artists stopped needing the patronage of aristocrats or the church and had to actually find an audience and a, a paying patron for their work. You know, that's, I mean, that's basically what the rise of Western liberal capitalism is all about. <laughs> and it's it's difficult. You know, people continue to struggle with it. It's one of those lessons that I think every generation needs to learn for itself. That's part of the reason that I was so fascinated in with my research into 19th century Parisian bohemians because basically they were doing it for exactly the same reason that me and my friends were doing it. They 
needed to find a way when they were young and they were they were discovering themselves and and learning their their work and their craft and who they were they needed to find a space that was safe and free from the social requirements uh, that is not only the morals and dictates of society but also the need to make a living and they didn't want to be what would be corrupted i guess is maybe a strong word but that's more or less what it is corrupted by the desires or the need to make a living to build an audience they just all they wanted was a place where they could find their own voice and they had to shun society for a while but it was never their intention to live that way forever they only needed to do it while they were young and learning who they were and then they mm. were ready to go into society feeling strong and secure about not only who they were but what they were capable of and uh how they could have an uh, an original independent voice which i think you can't do if you plunge into the sort of social maelstrom say fresh out of college you just you know then then you're too young and and you don't understand how the world works i think to a certain extent and you might be more susceptible to lending your voice to perhaps to something you don't fully believe in in the idea that that's what success is so it was fascinating reading in particular this one quite famous novel that i'd known about for decades and never got round to reading which is a, a book called scene de la vie de bohème which is a scenes from the life of bohemia mm. it was the book that Puccini took uh, used opera, to write right. La Boheme and then of course Jonathan Larson for rent right for rent and it's quite recognizable the characters are all the same as they are in in Puccini I'm not kidding yeah. yeah but this is the early 1840s you know when you think about these people running around Paris you know wearing tattered clothes catching food playing pranks doing everything they can to disrupt and disdain society you know in the united states at the same time the western frontier was was st louis <laughs> you know uh, i mean when you think about that context you're like wow <laughs> yeah I, you can't believe it they're yeah. like full blown recognizable western bohemians with all exactly the same morals and standards and ethics as we had in the in the 1980s and and of course our forebears going back to the 50s except that you know it was really really dangerous to be a bohemian 150 years ago because well there was no social security if you didn't have a coat or wood to burn in your fireplace you would die in the winter you know it was just that simple and they did Henri Murger who was the uh, author of that became very very famous in France but he still died in his 40s from all of the illnesses that he had contracted living his life as a bohemian in his 20s and you you know going even coming up into the 20th century there's so many examples especially in France of bohemians dying young because of their excesses and it wasn't always drugs it was sometimes it was as simple as you know tuberculosis contracted because just don't completely forget and lose track of taking care of yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It was dangerous and they died. A lot of them did. Yeah. There's this huge lingering question, you know, at what cost great art? 
And I guess maybe one of the central questions brought up recently in the movie Whiplash, right? You know, where the, the yeah. classic, you know, that conversation, that scene where they're sitting around the table and, you know, they're talking about it and then the kid says, you know, yeah, essentially, like, I'd, I'd rather die, you know, at 30 years old and have the world talking about me for the rest of, you know, generations would be the greatest. But you actually have to go to that place to create great art and I don't know. You know, that's the question that, that haunts my entire book and it doesn't really no. get answered at the end. It's the question that's haunted my entire life because I did make a change in my 30s because for so many reasons, some of which I understand and some of which I don't understand, it didn't really make any sense for me to remain a bohemian for the rest of my life. I guess I, I learned what I needed to learn. But Unlike these young people in, in Murger's novel who knew when it was time to quit and understood that they had milked this lifestyle for everything it was worth and everything they needed to get from it, it took me a long time to understand that I hadn't betrayed myself by making a change in my life, mm -hmm. that in fact I was simply building on everything that I had learned in my 20s as a quote-unquote bohemian and moved on. But for a long time, it felt as if I had taken a, the wrong path, especially because I didn't just stop being a bohemian. I became a, a civil servant. I've had the same job. I just celebrated my 25th anniversary in the same job. That's actually proved to be an incredible boon to me. But in any case, I guess I'm getting off the, the topic. There's going to be a price to pay if, if you feel like you have it in you to create art that's going to that's going to stand out or that's going to last or that's going to mean something both to yourself and to your audience there has to be some sort of a price it's hard to say what it is what price you pay i don't think that any of us in our own lifetimes are really able to properly judge whether we've made the right decisions you know does it make sense for me to be Miserable and unhappy. I have a I have a fantastic family life. It supports me when I sit quietly by myself. I don't feel lonely because I know that I'm out there loved. Um, who was it? Oh, was it Anne Beattie oh, who said that the cure to isolation is solitude? Hmm. No, the cure to loneliness is solitude. I finding it very hard to regret the decisions I made, but. I did for a long time. I thought that I had made a mistake by choosing a, a mainstream lifestyle. I thought that I wasn't ever going to create the work that I needed to create that maybe I was born to create because I was having to get up every morning at four o'clock and write for three hours before going off to my job. Yeah. So let's deconstruct that a little bit here so that people sort of listening can understand this this path that you've chosen. You know, So you, you start out living the life of the Bohemian in Alphabet City and where it's, it's basically you live and breathe community and creation, you know, like all day, every day. That's, right. it moves through you. you know, that, that's your heartbeat for about, about a decade or so? More or less, yeah. Yeah. And then talk to me about how the evolution away from that begins. Well, one way, when I was, I was making a living such as it was, I mean, I didn't really need to make much of a living. Um, I didn't publish my first novel until I was in my late 20s, so I wasn't making very much money as a writer. I was a reader. I read screenplays 
and novels for the film industry. I write up little reports saying, you know, this book would be good for a movie and that good. It was, it was a fantastic way to earn a living. You know, I'd go up to the office, pick up three or four books and read them during the course of the week, write two-page synopses of each one. And that's how I made my living. But I was also a translator, a literary translator. And I was very lucky at a very, very young age, in my early 20s, maybe 23 or 24, to have the opportunity to, to translate a series of uh, sort of classic French 20th century books. And so sort of made a bit of a name for myself back then as a very young translator. I was very lucky because it was a perfect intro. Anyway. But at that point, this is still, that's just the thing that you're doing couple hours a day to make sure that your rent is covered so that you can essentially... Well, you know, but translation is really literary work. Right. And it's a great apprenticeship for writers because you learn to see your words as a whole different currency. Mm. If writing a novel is choosing words to fit an idea in your head and eventually to build some sort of edifice based on nothing but your own imagination, translation is choosing words to fit somebody else's ideas and building this edifice on a skeleton that somebody else has put up for you. So it requires a very different set of criteria mm. that is comes in really handy to the writer because it teaches you a lot about discipline and to always examine each word carefully to make sure, you know, it's very easy to, to be cavalier about the words you choose and the way you put them together when you're a novelist because there's no – you're not holding it up to any mirror except this imaginary mirror in your right. own mind. Whereas as a translator, you have to imagine that you are sitting opposite the, the writer and he's looking to make sure that you're not making any egregious mistakes. You're always very careful to consider – more than your own criteria yeah. as a translator. I would imagine too that, I mean, it's fascinating to me because what an, an amazing way to sort of fill in the education as a writer, like you being a writer also and, and like developing the craft and at the same time having this experience. And also because you've got to, when you're doing that, especially with what you're translating, you also, you have to really understand the greater context of the, you know, what was happening in the culture and the world and the society around when this person wrote this thing, I would imagine, because that's going to inform how you translate to a certain extent. Well, that's absolutely true. You know, but what you have to remember is that, again, unlike writing fiction or even nonfiction, if you're being very creative about it, you can't do everything as a translator. You know, if that's especially true with poetry, I didn't translate a lot of poetry, but you always have to choose something that's not going to make it into the book. Do you want the voice to sound natural and English or American so that it's not jarring to the reader? Well, then you're giving up the idea that you're going to make this person sound exactly like they did in, say, in the 1920s or the 1840s. Right. Do you want, if it's a poem, do you keep the rhyme? If you keep the rhyme, you're giving up something else. You're always giving up something in order to highlight what you believe to be the salient fact of of the work. I think of, of Seamus Haney, who translated Beowulf without speaking very much or any Anglo-Saxon. He read what he could, he, but he had somebody else translate the meaning for him because to him, 
the meaning of each individual word was far less important than the humanity of the behind the people who were speaking it. That's a very faint voice coming back 1200 years in a language that is not really English at all, even though we often call it Old English. He made a decision before he started translating that he was going to focus on the person behind the voice. And therefore, he had to give up the idea that if somehow a Dane from the 12th century, or I, th I think maybe they weren't Danes, they were um, – anyway, it was written in, in Anglo-Saxon, which was Germanic. You know, if somebody had come along from that century and read his work, they might not have recognized themselves. But that wasn't important to him and I, I happen to agree. But you could disagree and nevertheless understand the process by which he made those decisions. Those are not decisions that you need to make as a novelist except at the kind of deepest, deepest level that in most cases you're probably not even aware of when you're making choices about your voice and about the language you're going to use. But again, it's an incredibly useful way to slow down your reading in a way that we almost never do. I mean, you know, I, I'm a very slow reader and a very in-depth reader. I like to, I like to yeah, read things slowly. I'm the exact same way. <laughs> yeah. But as a translator, you're reading a book at a level that you would almost never read it if you were simply reading it. And that's, again, that's an incredibly useful tool to bring into your own writing because you're, you're moving at such a slow pace that you see how every sentence and every paragraph is structured in a way that you, you wouldn't do unless you were an academic, say. And I'm not an academic even remotely. Yeah. How did that, I mean, this is such a hard question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because, you know, you've only lived one past. You only know that the way that you've learned to write and the experience that you've had. But do you have a sense for how that experience affected your approach to, so I think it was Vonnegut who said, you know, like there are two types of writers. They call them bashers and um, blanking on the other one. But basically there's the writer who vomits everything in their head onto the page. And then goes back and spends you know, months and months, sometimes years, rewriting, 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 rewriting. And then there's the writer who goes very slowly, very deliberately, very meticulously. Um, they're thinking through and editing in their head. And when the word hits the page, it's near finished. So that when they finish a manuscript, it's pretty close to done. It still needs editing, but it's, it's pretty much there on the page. Do you have a sense for whether your experience translating moved you towards one extreme or the other? Do you even buy into that distinction? I'm curious. Actually, you know what? I don't really. That, that distinction no. doesn't entirely work for me. And of course, I can't speak for any other writer. Even when people do talk about their writing process, we tend to, our eyes glaze over. Right. You know, It's like <laughs> listening to somebody's stories about their pets or their dreams. You, know, you don't really want to know how other writers work. So I'll keep this short. <laughs> I am very focused on the elegance of a sentence. Most sentences that, that go down on the page for me are written slowly and thoughtfully, but at the same time, I'm not always aware of the structure of the book. What I found in my experience, uh, I'm working now on my seventh book, is that almost always I end up having to discard the whole first third of the book because the characters aren't alive yet and the arc of the story for what it's worth 
is undetermined, which is the right way to go about it. I mean, you have to let the story guide itself to a certain extent, and you have to let the characters come to life at their own pace. Eventually, they will. I mean, if they don't, there's a much bigger problem than the first third mm -hmm. of your book. But things don't tend to come alive in a way that that I can rely on the characters to move the story forward by themselves until at least the first third of the book. So I might as well have bashed it out because I have to restructure the entire book oh, after I finish the first draft. Right. That's always the way it's been. In the case of this particular memoir, which I'd never written a memoir before, I wrote it very quickly so that I would have time. Normally, I don't write under under a deadline because uh, nobody's waiting for the novels. Uh, I sell them after I've finished writing them. But in this case, I had a contract and I had to have the book finished at a certain time. And I wrote it fairly quickly so that – What's what's fairly quickly? Just uh, About 18 months. Okay. Maybe two years. Got I can't it. really – I think maybe from the beginning to the end – I had three years to write it, mm. but maybe it was two years. I, I'm, you know, yeah, yeah. it's already several years ago. And, um, but I gave myself six months after I finished the first draft so that I would have plenty of time. And it turned out that was barely enough time. There was something really wrong with the book. Mm. Uh, I have a small group of trusted readers, uh, including my wife and and close friends, who always read for me and and give me uh, their version of, 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 of a blunt truth. And the, there was something wrong with the book. I, I think even then, at that late stage, I didn't really know what the book was about or what I was groping for. And so I had to completely restructure it. And I was really lucky. I, I did figure it out in those six months. And the book in the end came out fairly – I mean, I was quite pleased with it. I'm not very gentle with myself. Hmm. Um, As most writers aren't. You know. <laughs> but it, it didn't turn out to be a bad book at all. Uh, and I mean, at least it, it came to life and it has a core of honest emotion, whether it's successful in an overall way, I leave that to other people to decide. But I was pleased that I was able to find some real truth in it for me. But I mean, that's living by the skin of your teeth, you know? Hmm. I mean, the chances of my starting out with a book that was as flawed as this was and being able to completely turn it around in six months were, were pretty slim. And uh, I mean, it's, it, that speaks well for the need to meet a deadline. Because so it's interesting because I'm a writer also. I haven't written nearly as much as you and, and, and generally different focus. But what's fascinating to me, this is a curiosity of mine. I'm, I'm a huge believer in constraints, force, creativity, you know, constraints, force, problem solving. So on the one hand, I'm thinking, okay, you know, like it is the likelihood that, you know, you were able to turn it around in six months, you know, it tough, really challenging, but you were able to do it, you know, had you not had that constraint, you know, would you not have felt the pressure of the need to actually push through all the fierce emotion and cognition and recreation and conversations that would have led to that? I often think that so many people have, you know, these profound songs in their heart that never get out because they don't have the constraint to force it out. <laughs> you know, I think you're right only to a certain extent. I mean, the truth is that if I didn't have the constraint, I probably wouldn't have written the book at all. Mm. This book came out of an essay that I wrote in uh, Poets and Writers. Right. I read the originals. Uh, but obviously the book is very different. It would not have occurred to me to turn that into a book because that essay 
was very much about me and my own experience, I would never have considered the idea of writing about, you know, the life of a of a civil servant slash novelist to be of very much interest to anybody else. But a publisher of mine who had published several other books read the essay and asked me to consider turning it into a full length book and you know, when people ask me to write a book, I <laughs> I wouldn't have, Why yes. <laughs> why yes. And it was only after I had signed the contract that I, I began to regret yeah. the idea. And obviously, I don't regret it now. I'm very pleased that I did it. But writing about – I grew up um, – although I'm a New Yorker, I spent a lot of my childhood in England. And, you know, when you grow up in England, talking about yourself doesn't come very naturally. It's not mm. a culture that, that encourages that doesn't really encourage you to dwell too much on your own emotions or on emotional truth. At least that's how it was yeah. 50 years ago. It, it's like the opposite. Yeah, exactly. States. I don't, I don't think British, British culture is like that anymore. Uh, I think they've come a lot closer to wh who we yeah. are, but that was the first of many walls that I had to tear down in order to get at what I really, what I wanted to say, which of course I had no idea what I wanted to say. Hmm. So that's an enormous constraint. I agree with you completely that, you know, I always, I always tell my students that, you know, you imagine a river that overflows its banks and spreads out over, you know, 100 square miles, or imagine a river that has concrete banks and the, the full force of the current is channeled. Those banks are the constraints that either you set yourself or which you most of us have to learn to create those constraints ourselves because there's no constraints in the outside world. It's absolutely essential. So I mean, I'm, I was always very good at school. I like writing writing essays. I liked having deadlines. I don't have very many of them in my life, mm. and so having this was was very helpful. But without them, I kind of feel like I probably would never have written the book at all. Yeah. Which is interesting too, because in, until th this was your first nonfiction book, right? I wrote a history book many okay. years ago. So, and it's such a different world for those who aren't sort of familiar with the behind the scenes working of publishing. As a general with nonfiction, you don't sell the book; you write a proposal, That's right. and you sell the proposal, and then you turn around and you agree to write the book by X date. Whereas with fiction, it's complete; it's the exact opposite. You write the book. And then you hand over a finished product and say, who wants it? Exactly. You know, so, so on the one hand, you, on the nonfiction side, you've got constraints legally and financially imposed by an agreement that you've signed to create by X date. But in the fiction side of things, you've got to engineer, you've got to fabricate that yourself. Because it's so, true. you know, having written both, do you create that same constraint when you're writing fiction, when you're writing novels? And do you find it harder? Well, I'm very disciplined. I have to be because I have to go to my office every no. day. I've been doing it now for a long time. I barely even think about it. One thing that I found to be exactly the opposite was having finished the book, I would often rest emotionally and physically from it. And sometimes these these hiatuses would stretch out over a year or or even more during which time I was incredibly brutal with myself and, and I felt like I was doing something wrong and I was being lazy and you know this was no way for a writer to, to comport himself. I should be writing every single day. And it took me a while. When I say a while, I mean a decade or two decades 
to understand that that hiatus was actually part of my writing process. I was not resting at all. I was thinking all along about my next book. But, you know, writing is – the word writing means taking up a pen mm. and putting it to paper. You don't normally think of the time that you spend simply daydreaming about a story to be part of the writing process. And it took me a long time to recognize that that was the case and that was what I was doing. And then I became much less strict with myself. I allowed myself the time to work it out in my head. And then when the, I'm right there now, I'm just about to sit down and really start putting pen to paper. But it's been, I mean, I've been writing smaller things, but it's been over well over a year since I actually was writing another book. Right. I'm so glad that you brought that up because there is this illusion that if you don't have your words every day, you know, you're not writing, you're not doing your job as a writer also. But there's so much I'm so much of it comes from the space that you create for the ideas to dance in your head and play with each other and, you know, permute and just like figure out and you know, if, and I think some of that can happen through the process of just writing and through emptying that conversation onto the page just because, you know, morning pages is essentially to a certain extent that. But also some of, for me, I don't, I've never done morning pages. I've tried. It's not my process. For me, and maybe we're similar in this way, my head is just filled with, it's working things out 24 seven. So by the time I actually start to, you know, put something on paper or, you know, these days just start typing, a lot of it is formed because I've given myself that significant amount of time to just dance with all of these ideas and people. And, but like you said, I think that it takes a long time for you to, to not beat yourself up and understand that you're writing when you're doing that. At least in my mind, like to me, that's a part of, like, it's a critical part of the writing process. Yeah. You know, I don't read very many writers who write about the process of writing what they tell their students. I don't teach that much. But this idea of waiting for something to come is – I don't think that that is considered to be mainstream advice. You know, whenever you do read a writer talking about what they tell their students, they say the one thing you have to do is write every single day. And they're probably right. You know, if I didn't have a job, I would probably be writing every single day. It's certainly true that – Nothing I do before I put pen to paper is anywhere near as important as afterwards in the sense that I can't imagine a character coming to life or a story being honed down to its finest edge just in my mind. That stuff, the book only comes to life on the page. Sure. So I would hesitate to tell anybody how to write. Clearly, I don't write the way other people do. I hope not. It's probably not the optimal way to do it. It's the way I have to do it, at least until such time as my, my books pay for, pay for themselves. <laughs> but if there's anybody out there who, who spends a lot of time worrying that they're doing it the wrong way, I think my experience could be helpful to show not only that there isn't one right way of doing it, but that also – you can be doing the serious work of a writer even when you don't have a pen in hand. A writer's work is the main part of it is putting pen to paper. But there's more to it than that, I think. Uh -huh. And a lot of it is is about allowing your mind to expand to its ultimate 
capacity for expansion, which isn't necessarily going to be facilitated if you're constantly beating yourself up and thinking that you're doing it the wrong way. Mm. Well said. And that really kind of brings us to really, I think, a lot of the, the, the focus of your last book and the essay that teed it off. Which is really this exploration of, you know, so to sort of filling in the story a bit for you, you know, you, you transitioned eventually into moving out of the life of a bohemian, you know, and taking translation as something you were doing on more of a literary basis and actually eventually woke up <laughs> fundamentally saying, wait a minute, this is my full time job. Um, yeah, it was, um, I met a guy at a party, literally, and he said, oh, you know, we have, there's always freelance translation work at the United Nations, you should come do it. So I did, and it was fantastic for a couple of years. I made a living that I could never have imagined living, but I was still free, I was just a freelancer. The only way to get a job at the United Nations is by sitting for a competitive international exam, which in my office only comes around maybe once every 10 or 12 years. There happened to be one two years after I started and I had an, an insuperable advantage because I had all this experience already as a freelancer. And I took the job because how could I not? And um, back in those days, this was still during the Cold War or right at the very end of the Cold War in any case. It was really good pay for not very much work. But the work gradually became more and more as as uh, the Cold War ended and, and the United Nations had started having to deal with all of these proxy wars all over the all over the world that would have been suppressed when everybody was a client of one of the two superpowers. So mm. my job became more and more demanding. But by that time, I had two children, I had a mortgage, and it would have been almost impossible for me to extricate myself from it. And that's when I started living with some regret about the choice that I had made. And were I, you still writing on the side at the time? Oh yeah, I was. Right. I didn't even publish my first book until I was already a staff member at the United Nations. Mm. I started at the UN at thirty. At that point, my first novel was already done, but it wasn't published until I was already at the UN. And I've written all six of my books, published books, plus several books that were not published. Uh, during that time. So that's exactly 25 years right now. So like, what would a representative day look like in terms of when you're writing, when you're working, when you're... Normally, I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and write for three hours and then go off to my job. We still, my, my work is very seasonal because of my specific job at the UN is something that's very unusual and doesn't exist pretty much anywhere else in the world. So I have a peak season and a quiet season. And during the quiet season, I'm often able to find three or four hours a day, you know, when when the sun is out <laughs> to write. But um, normally that would be – that would be what I would do. I would get up at four. And, and, and I do that not because I'm some sort of crazy martyr. It's because I've always woken up early and my mind is at its best. So I give my writing my best mind and um, – yeah, my profession a slightly lesser mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it seems like from the outside looking in, you know, you're you're waking up early, you're getting your hours writing, you've got a great job, you've got a great family, you're moving into life, you feel like you're honoring your responsibilities. What is it that triggers you to start to wonder if you've made the right choices? 
Well, the truth is, I would have to say that that's behind me now. No. That's why I was able to write right. this book. Writing the book itself helped me put a lot of it into perspective. I don't question myself so much anymore, but my job can be very demanding. And there are times that no matter what I say about giving my best self to my writing, that's probably not always the case. My idea had always been from the first day I took the job was looking at my friends and, and peers who were writers. And, you know, as you probably, as I'm sure you know, and as probably most of your listeners know, it's very, very difficult to make a living as a novelist. You know, you can be lucky like me and, and publish most of what you write. It still doesn't even come close to being enough to raise children. Especially in New York. <laughs> Especially in New York. I mean, I don't get paid nothing, but it doesn't even come close to covering the cost. Virtually every writer, with only one or two exceptions, every writer I know has to earn a living. If you're cobbling together a living, either doing freelance writing, say uh, travel writing or interviewing or whatever, or if you're teaching, your time isn't your own. In many cases, you won't have a, a tenured job, and so you're always worried about where your next job is coming to. And my idea had always been that if I did not have to worry about money, and I never had to worry about where my next paycheck was coming from, that was an incredible advantage as a writer, because I could wake up in the morning, even if it was four o'clock in the morning, and not be consumed with worry mm. about money like so many writers I know. To me, I felt, especially given a background of childhood that was sometimes a little bit tenuous economically, that that would be a really great advantage to me and that it would counterbalance the limits on my time mm -hmm. that were put on me by having a full-time job. And to that extent, I've been right all these years. You know, it's, it's a job and it doesn't allow me to set my own time and there are times when it prevents me from writing full time. And that's what I was, I was always worried about. I thought that because my time was not my own, I was not giving my writing the disciplined focus that it required. And I worried that it suffered from that. Right. So you're um, like asking the question, you're like, what if I had chosen differently you know, the whole I mean, time? Yeah. Asking what if is not the same as regret. Mm. And it took me a long time to figure that out. Regret is basically exclusively a negative affect. Uh, there's nothing positive about regretting, you know, a regret is somebody who's sitting at a bar, you know, worrying about something that they have no power over because it happened years ago. I wanted to be able to think clearly about the choices that I had made and try to understand why I had made them so that at my age, I still have, you know, 25 or 30 creative years ahead of me. And I wanted to make sure that I understood why I had made the decisions I had made, even though at times they seem counterintuitive and maybe wrong, so that I could take this pause in the middle of my life and look at where I had come from, try to understand why I had taken the direction I had taken so that I could go on unburdened by those doubts so that I could focus exclusively on my work and not on regret. Uh, I also wanted to be happy 
and it's very difficult to be happy if you're shackled by bitterness or regret. And so that's that was the exercise that prompted writing this book. Mm. Not uh, there have been several people. I remember when the essay came out. And there were a lot of comments about, you know, maybe you would be happier if you didn't spend so much time regretting what you had done in the past mm. or complaining about what a difficult life you have because you have to go to a, this great job every day. And I was very defensive about that. I've said, no, that's not what I'm doing at all. I'm not. I didn't get that from the essay, the original yeah, essay. Yeah, but you know, I've either. gone back to the essay. And the truth is that there is a little bit of that. Huh. A little, there's a little bit of self-pity that I was not aware that it was there. I'm lucky enough to have be married to a, a book editor. So she's able to give me extremely directed, targeted mm. advice. And so if she says, no, there's people don't want to read about bitterness or or about your mistakes. People want you to be able to find a positive message in your experience. And so that's – I think there was a little bit of it in there hmm. and that I was able to purge it completely from the book. Right. So sure, wasn't perfect. Having a full-time job for the last 25 years was not the best way to write to write books. But show me what is the best way. You know, I don't know what the best way is and I never will know. Again, my wife has always said, you know, you've had the advantage of being plugged right into the world. You go out there every day. You meet people. You see people. I mean, that's that's how a writer finds subject matter. That's how a writer understands that he or she is living in a society that's greater than the individual. And so there is an advantage to that that I might not have had if I had been sitting in a room by myself up in the country with a dog and some whiskey for the last 25 years. The same with, with raising children. You know, raising children is not, you know – if you want to do it the right way, it certainly does draw away some energy from thinking about yourself and thinking about your writing. But it also opens up an entire wing of the mansion of life that you would never have been able to explore if you hadn't done it. So the main thing is that I think that I think that I've learned from the book is that ultimately there isn't any right way to do this, but there are wrong ways. And the wrong way is to make yourself too unhappy, unhappier than you need to be. You know, you, if you're constantly worrying about issues of life and death and fairness and truth, you're never going to be completely happy, God forbid. <laughs> but you're not a master of your own emotion if one of them, say, unhappiness or bitterness is always the predominant one. I don't think I could ever have written a book as again I'm not I can't speak for the the success of my book. I can only speak for how far it goes towards being what I would want it to be. Mm. I do know that if I hadn't learned these lessons about the importance of being happy, they wouldn't have been as anywhere near as successful as they are. And that also goes against so much that we think we know about writing and artists in the modern world. You know, we've spent a hundred years being told that the geniuses are the people who are miserable and who focus on their art to the exclusion of all else. Now, it's possible that artists and writers and musicians and poets 
who have given up everything else for their writing. And, you know, I could name dozens of them off the top of my head. It's possible that they wouldn't have been able to, to create what they created if they had been quote unquote happier. You know, I, I spend a lot of time talking in this book about Franz Kafka, mm-hmm. who is the perfect, you know, he's the template. When, when people think about the tortured artist, they think about Franz Kafka, and rightly so. But Kafka would have been, he likely would never have been satisfied with himself, no matter what he had done. Um, the fact is that he had plenty of time to write. And if he had not had tuberculosis, he probably would have achieved some success in his own lifetime that he did not enjoy, didn't have time to enjoy it. And maybe he would have enjoyed that success. Maybe he wouldn't have been a source of misery and conflict for him. When he died, he was actually on the threshold of a new life. He might well have lived to fulfill one dream, which was to go to Palestine and open a coffee shop. And who knows what what his writing would have been like then, you know? So you can't worry that what is good for other people is going to be good for you. I had thought for a long time that my writing would have been better if I had made it my top priority instead of an equal priority with raising a family and being happy and perhaps you know although i don't love to psychoanalyze myself or anybody else you know maybe healing some wounds from a difficult childhood but i i did what i had to do you know and there is a lot of pressure out there to live the way other people think is the right way to live and it takes a long time in my case it certainly did to figure out that to figure out that, for lack of a better word, the arc of my life was was actually moving in exactly the direction that I wanted to it to move. I just didn't know what it was that I wanted, and that seems extremely esoteric, or perhaps. But maybe that's actually the center point. I mean, maybe <laughs> you know. But I mean, yeah. the truth is that once you see it, like most great truths, it's a very simple truth. Right. But. It can be so difficult to see that you are actually moving in the direction that you should be moving. You just don't know what it is that you want, really. That was absolutely the case with me. I didn't realize that I I could never have done it any other way than the way I've done it. And, you know, I'm just intensely grateful that I was forced to examine that by writing this. When I wrote the essay, it was kind of a I didn't realize it at the time, but I see it now. It was a crisis point. I didn't feel like I was in crisis. I've never gone through a midlife crisis. I've certainly spent a lot of time complaining to my wife about, <laughs> you know, why I have to live this way. But you know, I don't have to anymore, mm. and I and I've stopped mostly. <laughs> <laughs> still human, still living in New York, still writing, and yeah. still a family man. So it's. Yeah, but I I love the notion of just stepping back and owning the fact that like the fact that you're here doing what you're doing, like there's a certain honoring of the path that letting go of the shoulds and you know the the prescribed path and saying there's got to be a reason that I've taken the path to get me here. And then looking forward, you know, like you said, you know, really just saying, okay, you know, at this point of inflection, what have I learned and how can I deliberately how can I let go? of whatever angst I've been torturing myself with about not, you know, potentially having chosen this other path and just saying, you know what, 
it is what it is. I'm actually pretty good, you know, and let me focus on just building more joy along the way as I move forward. I think there's this wonderful book called Daily Rituals. I don't know if you've ever read it. No, I haven't. It looks at the, like a 24-hour span in the lives of, I think it's a couple of hundred of the world's greatest creators from writing to art to science to entrepreneurship over many, many generations. I was surprised when I read that book at the number of people who had full-time work-a-day jobs and did exactly what you've done. You know, they write for two, three, four hours in the morning and then they write in the evening and have produced astonishing work and would never dream of leaving the main gig. In part, it's a money thing, you know, in part, you get to a point in your life where you want to feel you're supporting your family, you're honoring you know, when your value system says part of what I believe in is that I, I want to provide whatever illusion of security and uh, whatever it may be for my family for what. So part of it is sort of an honoring of that belief system that, you know, I, I'm responsible and, and that's important to me to actually play the role of that. However, you may define being a responsible adult in whatever role you're in. Part of it also, at least from my perspective, is the experience of knowing that it's the freedom that you potentially allow yourself to not edit, to not censor, when you know that you're writing because it's the thing you can't not do. And that if it gets sold at the end of the process, awesome. But even if it doesn't, you know, you haven't censored, you haven't directed what you've written by whether you're going to be able to honor that sense of value to be a responsible adult. You haven't gone through the process and said, well, but, you know, if I tell the story this way, will it be more sellable? Mm -hmm. And there's a freedom that comes from just saying, this needs to be read the way it needs to be read. Yeah, it's true. I, you know, it, again, it, it's a shame that we always have to learn all of our lessons mm. for ourselves. You know, they, those, you don't seem to be able to pass down these lessons genetically so that nobody else has to go through them. And if you try, both as parents and on either side, if you try, you're probably, you're almost doing the exact opposite. Oh, yeah. What am I going to tell my children? <laughs> right. You know, when I was your age, I was, I, I had a job since I was 14. Why are you right, so- Right, right. That uh, doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. You know, one thing that I found, what I figured out from writing this this book was that my vision of who I was, was had kind of been frozen at a certain point and- I was looking at myself as a 50-year-old man through the eyes of who I was when I was 25 years old. And so I tended to judge myself rather harshly as, as you know, we, we did when we were young. We, we judged the whole world harshly. Everybody was betrayed their ideals and everybody was corrupt and nobody was honest and, and true. And that's how I had seen, looked at myself for a long time. I would look in the mirror and I would not see myself with my own eyes, but see myself with the eyes of a 25-year-old and judge myself very harshly. And I think one thing that I learned was that, you know, there's a way to, to kind of clean those lenses off and see yourself afresh. And I guess for lack of a better word is to forgive yourself or to accept yourself as who you are in a way that, in my case, I had not for a long time. I had felt like a failure, even though there was nothing in my life that could possibly suggest failure. I had raised two fabulous children. I've 
had this magnificent marriage for decades and decades. I wrote the books that I wanted to write, and I was incredibly lucky to have them published. There was nothing to suggest to me, there should have been nothing to suggest that I had done anything wrong at all, except for the fact that I was looking at myself through somebody else's eyes. And if the ability to, to kind of clean those lenses and see yourself afresh were something that I could bottle and sell, I think I would be a very popular product. <laughs> and in the book, I describe the process of learning to see myself anew, but it's just mine. It's not prescriptive. And maybe it's also possible that other people don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. The book certainly isn't. People have asked me if it's a self-help book. And I have to say, well, it's self-help because it helped me. It helped myself. But I couldn't possibly prescribe that for anybody else. But I would suggest that if you reach our age, and I think this is a really good age to really take a, a step back and look at where you've come from and just stop moving for a few minutes and look around you. Because in your early 50s, you're exactly in the middle of your adult life, more or less. Try to find a way to to look at yourself the way you might look at a potential new friend. You know, you're looking for reasons to like this person. You're looking for reasons to admire them. You're not, why would you meet somebody and look for reasons to dislike them or to judge them on the basis of some superficial characteristic? If you could look at yourself and... God, it sounds so new agey. It's not at all what I mean. I don't mean to say look at yourself and find reasons to like yourself because, I mean, that that's... But I think it's almost look at yourself and actually see yourself uh, yeah, for who you that's are it. now. That's it. And also see that the decisions you've made that have led you to this point were not wrong decisions. They were almost certainly based on a search for something that you need, that you lack, even if you were not aware of needing and lacking them. Again, it was absolutely the case with me that after beating myself up for so long about the possibility that I had shortchanged my career as a writer, I finally came to see that every single decision I had made that had led me up to this point was leading me somewhere where I needed to be. And, you know, the fact is, I mean, I'm about to turn 55, but I, which to some people might sound old. To me, it sounds old, but there's a lot of time left to make use of those lessons that you've learned if you can hold on to them into the rest of your life. Hey, it's a great place to come full circle as well. So the uh, the name of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer that term out to you to live a good life, what comes up? To be perfectly honest, I would say the life that I've led, I'm finally beginning to see that it's been pretty good. You can't do very much good for anybody else if you're unhappy. I was lucky enough to translate a book by a French Buddhist monk named Mathieu Ricard. He's a man who gave up a very promising career as a neurobiologist, and he is now the abbot of a Tibetan monastery in Nepal. 
He's the personal interpreter of the Dalai Lama. And he wrote this magnificent book called Happiness. And just being the translator of that book changed my life. I would get up again at four and literally jump out of bed for the opportunity to, to translate this book about the very simple yet hard work it takes to understand that happiness should be your, your highest goal. It's not learning to be happy is not about learning to be selfish. I don't think you can be very happy if you're selfish. Learning to be happy is about recognizing that it is the precondition, it's the foundation for everything creative and constructive that you can do in life. So I would say the Good Life Project has to start with learning to be happy. I suppose that was relatively easy for me because the whatever traumas I experienced as a young person were nowhere near as bad as so many people have to deal with and recover from. Most of us are recovering from something, even if it's, if it's very mild discomfort as a child. And after that, just simply, once you learn to be happy, you realize that you can't be happy unless you share it with other people. Being creative, being a writer was, is my way of sharing it. You know, what I have to offer, I can't say it was necessarily of great value to anybody else. But again, in the book, I talk a lot about this book from the 1970s called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. And it's an anthropology book about gift economies where the currency has no value unless it's gifted. We're not talking necessarily about money. We're talking about goods or stories even. Unlike in our society where, you, where currency has value if you hoard it, in a gift economy, it has no value unless it's shared and given away and it eventually comes back to you. And again, that sounds like something very simple, but the truth is that the only wealth you have is the wealth that you are able to give away. Nothing else really has very much value at all. It's beginning to work for me. I hope it will continue <laughs> to work, but that's, I mean, that's a good life, you know? It's not everybody's idea of a good life, but you have to find out what your own idea of a good life is. Indeed. Thank you. Pleasure, of course. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real, unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now, right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it, and then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community, who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. This 
This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAST Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors Craig Robinson and John Calipari. So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish right? What the reward is, what's at the end and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you want to get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks. Because if you set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather most storms if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain. You can access tomorrow's innovation today with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Invesco QQQ and produced by ACAS Creative. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco is not affiliated with ACAS Creative. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.